This morning we're going to have uh, Judy Propert come and uh, do our morning scripture reading. Are you skipping me here? Oh, oh, I'm very sorry about that. I, I'm so sorry about that. I guess, I guess we are are not skipping the hymn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's join with uh, with Nelson and Carol as uh, as we do our hymn of preparation, um, which is uh, in your red hymnal number. 138. Let's stand if we're able to. As we look into God's word today, we will be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, 
for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Thank you so much, Judy, for that. Will you pray with me this morning? Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. So a while ago... I was scrolling through Instagram, and I happened to notice a question and answer session done by an influencer. Maybe you've seen one of those before. A follower asked a question somewhere along the lines of, how do you stay motivated to work out? And this influencer answered somewhere along the lines of, I don't think of working out in terms of motivation but rather in terms of discipline. Seems like a pretty basic answer, right? Maybe one that you would expect. But for some reason in that moment, it stuck with me. When I think about the word motivation, I think happy thoughts. Some of the dictionary synonyms for motivation are Interest, enthusiasm, inspired, and encouraged. Discipline, on the other hand, doesn't have such a positive ring to it. The dictionary describes discipline as being regulated to be in accordance with a particular system of governance. Shoot, even the word governance today... Today, when the government of Russia has waged war against innocent Ukraine, killing innocent Ukrainians, and the Russian people are disciplined or regulated to be in accordance with that governance. And so they can do very little to bring justice to that situation. Discipline can be a frustrating word, and it can be a difficult idea to get behind. But when I read this influencer's answer, the words motivation and discipline hit a little different for me. When I look at a plate of cookies, like the plates that were put out every week at our fabulous Lenten lunches over the past few months, I am usually, more like always, motivated to eat several, more like the whole plate. In fact, over the past couple of months, there have been more than a few weeks when I purposefully didn't attend Lenten lunch because I just knew that my overwhelming motivation would drive me to eat way too many of those cookies. I am motivated to listen to a podcast, but not an intellectual, thought-provoking podcast. No, a recap podcast of a favorite reality show. It's words going in one ear and out the other, 
leaving me feeling soothed into complacency rather than enriched or inspired to live. On the other hand, I'm not usually motivated to get on my keyboard and learn a new song or even play through a song that I know by heart. I can't say honestly that I was too motivated to get up and work on this message that I'm sharing with you this morning. On the morning that I wrote it, I actually had to let several alarms go off before I was able to drag myself out of bed. Let me pause here to say that I know that motivation can be complex, right? There can be several motivating factors prompting a person to take a certain action, and just because I might not have enough of those motivating factors to pull the trigger and to take that action doesn't mean that I'm not at all motivated to do so. Most of the time, when I don't take action on something that's good, something that I know would be good for me, there is something deep down at the bottom of my gut, something in the center of my heart that is motivating me to do that thing. The only problem is that that motivation at the bottom, at the center, it gets buried It gets crowded out of sight by other motivations to do other things. And so I don't do what I'm motivated to do, what I want to do. I don't do what I truly want to do, what I know is right and good. And that makes me feel like there's little power in motivation. So when I read this influencer's answer which exchanged motivation for discipline, I felt hopeful. I felt like maybe there was a way out. Maybe I don't have to depend on motivation to get me where I want and I need to go. Maybe I can look to discipline to open that door. Because discipline doesn't need superficial happy thoughts or warm, fuzzy feelings. I don't need to pay the price of a broad, cheesy smile to get through the entrance gate to the way of discipline that leads to that action that I truly want to take. In these past few weeks, still surprised by my positive gut reaction to the idea of discipline, I've looked outside of myself to the Christian story, to the Bible and the Christian tradition Wondering if anyone else out there felt the same way as I'm feeling about discipline. I didn't do a word study, so this morning I'm not going to be throwing a bunch of verses out at you. Although I know that the Bible mentions discipline more than a few times. I'm pretty sure there's a verse or two in the book of Proverbs that talks about parents disciplining their children, training them up in the way they should go so that when they're older, They won't depart from that way. It's a beautiful verse, but reading it as a young adult when I was still living under my parents' roof did more to sway me away from any good feelings about discipline than it did to endear me to that idea. 
No, instead of thinking about Proverbs, and maybe it's because we've just come out of our Lenten season, I thought about Jesus. I thought about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem and the cross that lay ahead of him, confidently but soberly telling those around him that it was time to go to that place. I can't pretend to know the mind of Jesus, but there is nothing in the words or tone of these biblical passages that suggest that Jesus was thinking happy thoughts or having warm and fuzzy feelings about going to his death. No, instead he was crying, crying tears like blood in the garden and not drinking that final cup of celebration at the Last Supper meal. And as the crowds cheered for his crucifixion, he didn't join in the party, but he stood before them silently. Jesus might not have had the warm and fuzzy feelings that I tend to associate with motivation, but he lived his whole life in accordance with a particular system of governments as discipline stipulates. That system of governance was God his Father. Priest and theologian Henry Nouwen says that when Jesus asks his disciples in John 11, verses 25 through 26, do you believe in me? What he's really asking them is if they believe in Jesus, not as an independent self, but as one who is in full communion with God the Father. Jesus was sent to earth by the Father. Everything Jesus said came from the Father. And all the works that he did, he did because the Father wanted him to do them and gave him his power to do them. Seeing and touching Jesus was seeing and touching the Father. Jesus was the obedient one, obedient to the Father. And I don't know about you, but the words obedience and discipline actually hit me in the same way. Jesus came to earth to draw all people into communion with God, under God's governance, just like he was. He interacted with crowds of people and friends, but the one group of people we see him most often interacting with in Scripture is his disciples. And even now in today's world, we Christians are called to live our lives as Christ's disciples. Hmm. Discipline. Disciple. Do you see a connection there? Living a spiritual life or a life guided by God's spirit, a life lived in communion with God, just like the life Jesus lived, necessarily involves discipline. Henry Nouwen actually goes so far as to say that a spiritual life without discipline is impossible. Disciples are people who respond to Jesus' call, come follow me. But the road that they walk is narrow. They don't follow a big crowd sprawled out across the highway They follow a singular pair of feet. As I was reading this week, I came across an illustration of a person riding a bike. 
maybe the reason that this illustration stuck in my brain was that a few years ago, my mom was riding her bike down our home street and she decided to take her hands off the handlebars, as I'm sure many of us have done before. And when she did this, she went crashing down and she fell on her elbow. I remember that day because she and my dad, following through on the plans that they had previously made with Hector and I, showed up at our front door in Queens, and her elbow was this big, swollen ball the size of a grapefruit. And she was in so much pain that she almost fainted later while we were all sitting at the lunch table. She ended up having to get surgery on that elbow. Anyway, I bring up this story to suggest that when you or I are riding a bike on a narrow road, it takes some effort on our part. It takes a lot of consistent micro-movements over a long period of time to stay up and following in the way set before us. I wish we could just take our hands off the handlebars, close our eyes, cease from concentration, and ask God for his grace. But it doesn't usually work that way, does it? Maybe it's worth pausing here to ask you a question. If a spiritual life is impossible without the not-so-feel-good way of discipline, why would we even want to live a spiritual life? Why would we want to live as Jesus and his disciples connected to God? Why would we want to put in the effort all those constant micro-movements that it takes to stay up on the narrow path Let me ask you, as you live your life, what does it matter to you that you live it connected to God? Maybe it seems like a silly question for me to ask in a church on Sunday, right? But if I'm being honest, there are times that I can live out a moment, a day, a week, even a series of weeks forgetting about God. So it's a worthwhile question for me to ask myself. And the answer that I have to give myself is that God created me. And God created the world that I live in. So my life makes sense when it flows out of a connection with God. When I live with God, I live as God made me to live. And it feels right. A spiritual life, a life to live with the Holy Spirit, proclaims freedom to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. It is a life powerful enough to overcome even death. Without God, on the other hand, it's just me, myself, and I. I run the rat race trying to make myself as big and powerful and praiseworthy as I can The presence of God is a threat to my own power and praiseworthiness. And so is the presence of other people who I look at like competitors rather than friends and partners. So I stay away from all of them. And it's just me, myself, and I. And my lone self can only get so big and mean so much on its own. 
It's just not enough to really satisfy. So we choose the disciplined spiritual communing with life, communing with God life, like Jesus and his disciples chose. But how did they, how did they live and how do we live that life? Since the time of Jesus, Christians have practiced what we call the spiritual disciplines in order to grow into that close communion that Jesus had with God the Father so that their lives and the lives of those in their communities and the world would be transformed by that communion with God. Though I have a lot left to learn, I do know a little about the spiritual disciplines and If you recently did or have ever done a fast for Lent, then you too know something about the spiritual disciplines. Fasting has actually been described as the shorthand for an entire range of spiritual disciplines, so maybe you know a lot more about the disciplines than you think you do if you have ever undertaken a Lenten fast. But if you're generally unfamiliar with the spiritual disciplines, you're not alone. Throughout much of Christian history, the spiritual disciplines or disciplines for a spiritual life have been neglected. Why do you think that is? Maybe for some people, it's the title. The word discipline just isn't warm and fuzzy enough. Other people don't subscribe to the disciplines for spiritual life because their faith has little to do with their life, at least their life here on earth. The faith of these Christians has been stripped down to Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. They say that all we are called to do with our life here on earth is to simply believe this truth. Believe that Jesus died to forgive our sins. And once you believe that truth, you can just sit back and wait for your death. And then after that, after you die, then the eternal and abundant life with God begins. The main symbol of the faith of these Christians, you might be able to guess, is the cross the place where Jesus died. But did you know that the cross wasn't the main symbol of Christianity in its earliest days? Dallas Willard, who's one of the authors that I've been reading over the past several weeks, notes that the disciplines, the disciples weren't drawn to Jesus at the moment of his death. Rather, they were drawn to him during the course of his life here on earth. A life that was shown by the resurrection to be even more special in its indestructibility than they had previously thought. The cross for those early disciples was the point where Christ's life was most fully displayed and triumphant. It was the climax and the summation of Christ's life. But as time went on and Christ was no longer present with those early followers in the flesh to live life as intimately as he had, his life and his teachings just became decorations for the cross. 
And as a result, the life a Christian lived between the moment he or she accepted Jesus as Savior and the moment of his or her death lost its meaning. As sort of an aside, a few weeks ago, Christina Tello, who most of you know, she spoke at our midweek service about atheism. And based on the research she had done, she concluded that the presence or the absence of atheism in our world has everything to do with the lives that we Christians live here and now on this earth. And whether or not those lives are being transformed and changed and transforming the suffering and the evil in the world around us. I vividly remember sitting on the couch in the youth room that night and having to ask myself, having to wrestle with the hard question of whether my faith was really making a difference in my life here and now and in the lives of those around me who desperately need to experience the healing, the freeing, the resurrecting power of God in their lives here and now. The philosophy behind the spiritual disciplines says that the lives we live here and now on earth do matter and they should matter and that they can be meaningful because when Jesus came here to earth those many years ago, he brought with him life and life more abundant and eternal And we don't have to wait until we die to have that life. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when we grow into that kingdom with the help of the spiritual disciplines, our lives and the lives around us will be made new by the power of God in communion with us. This is the kind of Christian philosophy that brings people to Jesus, one that values their lives to such an extent that it changes them, bringing healing where suffering threatens to have the final word. That's what the grief share ministry is all about, right? Even with all that said, discipline still just seems to carry this negative connotation for many of us Christians. Why? Are we blinded by God's grace? Are we worried that if we put any effort into our relationship with God, we might start to take all the credit for our closeness to him? Maybe our faith will just become another thing to pat ourselves on the back for, to take pride in. Another thing that makes us feel better than everybody else around us who maybe isn't putting in the effort that we are putting in as we practice those disciplines. Maybe we won't see any need for God anymore and become solely dependent on ourselves and our efforts in order to live a good life and be saved. Maybe we're uncomfortable with the idea of discipline for a completely different reason. Maybe we're afraid that following that narrow way will make us feel tight, chained up, constricted, 
Kind of like it feels when our hands are clenched around those handlebars on the bike and our eyes are laser focused to the point that we miss all the beautiful scenery around us. Maybe the idea of discipline feels like too much of a threat to the idea of freedom. There's this story that I love in the Bible, one that I find myself returning to again and again. And it's the story of the Israelites in the wilderness following a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, worrying about the Egyptians coming to get them, worrying about not having food and water, just plain worried, tight, constricted, stressed. They were free in the desert after Moses had led them out of slavery in Egypt, but it wasn't what they had envisioned freedom looking like. It wasn't what they considered to be abundant life. When we read this story, we often laugh and we mock their complaints. How can you guys want to return to Egypt where you were enslaved, beaten, sitting around making bricks out of mud for palaces and tombs that you'll never enjoy? Don't you know that you're on your way to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey? We lecture them, maybe you're living a disciplined life out here in the desert, a simple life with few resources, but that's going to make it all the better when you get your hands on that milk and honey. If we know anything about how the story of Israel unfolds, the people didn't actually feel all that great once they got their hands on all that milk and honey in the promised land. A few of those people got greedy and they took all that they could get, leaving the rest of society barely able to scrape together enough to get by on the day-to-day. And that corruption angered God, which catapulted Israel into more chains and more enslavement under Assyria and Babylon. Even before Israel was conquered by those nations, there were a lot of people, led by the prophets, who yearned for the old days of simple, disciplined desert life. Why? Because there wasn't so much in the way. In that wide, open, empty, quiet wasteland, they could hear God's voice. In the burning bush, in the cloud and the pillar of fire, God was near. He was near because they needed him to be near. They couldn't depend on the milk and honey to sustain them. And that meant that they weren't fixated on it and chained to those resources. In that empty, quiet place, their eyes and their ears were free to be open to God. Henry Nouwen talks about the spiritual disciplines not in terms of control, keeping a tight, constricted life, grip on life, But he talks about them in terms of 
the effort to create space in which God can speak and act. Orthodox theologian Joseph Latandra, in answering the question of why we fast, and again, fasting has been described as the shorthand for an entire range of spiritual disciplines, he says that we fast to be free. Discipline, then, is less about restriction and confinement, and it's more about space and freedom. It's not a closed door, but it's an open one. The thing is, though, and maybe this is truly what makes us uncomfortable when we hear the word discipline, in order to make space, in order to be free, we have to do the difficult work of letting go. We have to, with continuous, focused micro-movements, separate ourselves from some of the things that are crowding in on us and chaining us down. And if you're like me, you have a hard time doing that because you've gotten very comfortable with a lot of those things, so much so that they don't even feel like chains. And if they feel like a crowd, it's a crowd of best friends rather than rather than a chaotic noisy mess of strangers who are keeping your real best friend from walking in the door. But in order to be free, we have to partner with God in freeing ourselves from the chains and the crowds. I love the way Joseph Latondra puts it. He writes, It's as though you're lugging two heavy suitcases through the airport. And suddenly you spot your family running towards you. What do you do? You drop your luggage. You open your arms to receive the welcomed and welcoming embrace of those who love you. Because we're made in the image of God, I think sometimes we humans, we forget that we're not God. We can't hold the world in the palms of our hands like he does. We only have two hands. We only have ten fingers. Or, if you're Bill Propert, nine. (laughs) If we want a transformed, more abundant life, it's not about making room for more because we just don't have room for more. It's about noticing what we're holding on to. And purposefully, intentionally, with effort, letting go, leaving our nets behind so that there is an open space. An open space for what? First, for God, for his voice, for his direction, for his power. And once God is there, he might just bring something new with him into that open space. Maybe it's a new word, or a new person, or a new place, or a new calling. The particulars are going to look different for each of us, but one thing will be the same, and that's that we'll have a new life transformed and transforming as we move towards those new people and places, advancing the kingdom of God 
as we follow his will by his way. Doesn't your mind just still fight against this, though? (laughs) This idea of letting go and being disciplined of what you allow to be in your hands? My favorite book, An Altar in the World by Barbara Brown Taylor, has this chapter entitled, The Practice of Saying No. I remember how my mind was blown the first time I just saw that title, let alone read the chapter. Because though we've all heard the phrase, just say no, right? It's easier said than done when the phrase, say yes to everything, is also floating around. Coupled by the fact that everything marketed to us nowadays is designed to make us crave more of it, so that we'll fork over more of our money and more of our time. We end up with less of the things that we really need, time and money, and more of what we don't need. In little ways, little ways each and every day, we need to practice saying no to the things that are easy for us to say no to, so that one day, when the devil hits us with that big temptation, the wolf in sheep's clothing that speaks to us soothingly like a best friend, we'll find ourselves so trained up by a long life of discipline that we have the motivation to let it go and to walk away Not with effort, but naturally and freely. But for now, don't get distracted by that big moment and that easy feel good motivation. Don't fixate it on, don't fixate on it as the stuff of life. Because most of life is lived in the in-between. The small steps taken on the dusty road that get us to the big moments. The steps taken in the desert without food and water when we might look and feel weak, but in reality are building strength. The steps that are out of the spotlight that nobody sees or hears taken in the early morning hours or the late nighttime hours when everybody else is asleep. As we shuffle our feet along, one in front of the other, each step will look and feel insignificant because it won't be met with an instant reward. Maybe a few of those steps might even be stumbles and we'll wonder if we've failed. But it's all practice. It's preparation. It's the building of a habit, the constructing of a character that ultimately creates a new life that will bring new life to the world. When Jesus says, come follow me, this is what he's talking about. A lifetime of small, unseen, and a unappreciated footsteps on a dusty, dirty, wearying journey. A lifetime of discipline, 
doesn't have such a positive ring to it, does it? Especially when we consider that though Jesus leads the way for us, he can't walk that road for us. We have to stand up and follow him. But it's the way to resurrection. This morning I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of all the spiritual disciplines from the bit I've read, everybody has a different list of disciplines, a different way of organizing them. But I did find it interesting that for two of the writers that I read, silence was a foundational discipline. Silence. For Henry Nouwen, in order to connect with God, we need to discipline ourselves away from the noisy city. And that includes the beautiful voices, the relationships that we have with the special people in our lives. And we need to head to the quiet solitude of the mountaintop. Like Jesus, who often spent time in prayer with the Father throughout the night, we might even have to discipline ourselves away from a bit of our precious sleep, too. Even when we're alone, however, away from the physical presence of others and the noise that they create, we'll experience still more noise coming from our own inward parts. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Joseph Latondra calls this noise toxic thoughts or passions. And he points out that the church fathers named these toxic thoughts, pride, anger, lust, greed, gluttony, envy, and sloth, so that when a thought would pop into their heads, they could categorize it, and if it fell into one of these toxic categories, they could call it out, call it by its name, and let it go. The practice of analyzing our thoughts according to these categories does involve some focused effort, however, which makes it ever more important to discipline ourselves away from the outside noise. And that includes, that includes the news and social media. If we're to have the space to step outside of ourselves and get an objective view of those thoughts so that we can let them go. And once the outer and the inner noise has stopped, and we have a free open space and we're listening, what will we hear? What will arrive in that open space? Henry Nouwen says that it'll be the voice of God saying the most important, the most vital, powerful, word-transforming thing that can be said. The same words that were spoken to Jesus himself at his baptism, and they're these, You are my beloved. On you my favor rests. You are my favorite one. And after that... (laughs) There really is nothing left or nothing better for me to say this morning or for you to hear. Simply because when we know that we're loved, 
Not for who we are, what we can be or what we can do, but for whose we are, God's. We won't be able to keep ourselves from doing whatever it takes to go out and spread that love. And that's what the world needs. That's what we need. That's resurrection. Instead of a prayer this morning, I'd like to close with one of my favorite songs. It's written and performed by my favorite um, artist, who is Audrey Asad. And the song is called, I Shall Not Want. It's a calling out, and it's a letting go. It's a disciplining ourselves away from those things that have been sitting in our hearts for too long in order to make space for the better words, the better calling that God has for you and I. Coming off this Lenten season in which many people practice fasting, in which we make the effort to let go, I pray that this song is God's grace for you, which is always there, always there to undergird whatever efforts we make or whatever practices of discipline we undertake. As you listen, would you meditate on each line with me? And not only that, but feel free to call out in your heart those additional wants that you'd like for God to help you free yourself from. Maybe it's as simple as a plate of cookies. (laughs) Maybe it's as difficult and deeply ingrained as a toxic thought that you've tried for so long to get rid of. Call it out. And may God, by his grace, help you let it go.